Our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with, in, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of God. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. Well, our flyover view of the letter to the Ephesians has, well, has turned out to be a little bit more in-depth than any of us probably first imagined, but boy, it's been a rich experience. Today is our last look into this little letter, and I have to say for myself, I'm going to miss it. This is one of my favorite letters in all of the Bible. But before we dive into the text with Ash, which Ashley just read for you, the closing words of this letter, let's take a moment to remind ourselves of what we have learned because these words about spiritual battle do not occur in a vacuum. They occur, they occur at the end of six chapters of writing when the Apostle Paul has talked to us. And just before he finishes his uh, letter to these people in Ephesus and the others who read that letter, he had some important words he wanted to say to them. But those words flow out of the context of what had happened before then. What have we learned as we've looked at this text? Well, in summary, we've learned that Jesus didn't just die to save individuals. He died to create a new community and that this is the heart of God's plan for the universe. What this means is that God's plan is personal, communal, and cosmic. Remember that. God has a personal plan for you. He also has a communal plan for you, and He has a cosmic plan for the universe. It's personal in that He wants to individually call human beings to faith in Christ by, uh, by making them alive in their trust in Christ and in his, salva his, his death on their behalf, paying the penalty for their sins, raising for their justification, and creating them a relationship with God which is based not upon human effort but upon divine grace. It's personal in that each of us has a personal response to the messages God has given to us. But it's not just personal. It's also communal. Because when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we become part of a family, and God has always wanted to use a community to bring about His purposes in the world. It's been true from the very first day when God called Abraham, when He said, through you, I will build a family, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we're not meant to be individualistic Christians, despite our American culture that says church is you know, one more commodity that we consume. No, we're part of a community. It is personal, it is communal, and it is cosmic in that God's 
ultimate goal for the universe is to create a new heaven and a new earth and that he will repopulate the world with those who are followers of him. And uh, it's cosmic in its scope. It's summarized best in the first chapter of this book that we looked at. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, where it says this, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's ultimate purpose, purpose for the universe is to unite heaven and earth together under the lordship in Christ, heaven and earth. So God has a personal, communal, and cosmic plan in mind, and you and I are invited to be a part of that. In this letter, Paul has opened our eyes in a way not unlike that of the character Neo in the movie Matrix. Remember that, of course. Like him, we have seen that the true nature of things is very different than we imagined. In the Apostle Paul's words, the world as it exists is dead and has been made alive because of Jesus' death and resurrection. As we respond in faith to the good news of Jesus, we become more fully alive people, first within our own hearts, then within our families, then within our, the ecclesia, the community of faith, the local community of faith, and then as followers of Christ, we begin to spread that message to our world and ultimately affecting all of the world. As followers of Jesus, we are seeking to live like a colony of heaven here on earth, loving people like Jesus loves, accepting people like Jesus accepted, forgiving like Jesus forgave, serving as Jesus, uh, serving as Jesus served. We seek to allow the resurrection power of Jesus to live in us and through us as we bring a message of faith, love, and hope for the world. Because of God's ultimate victory in Christ, everything is smooth sailing, right? Everything's perfect. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. The powers that keep our world in the dark do not like it when we seek to show uh, it in this light. The powers that keep us enslaved to our passions, to our possessions, to our selfishness, do not stand idly by while we bring a message of hope. No, because we have been uh, brought in the light of Jesus Christ, shining to a world of darkness, we encounter spiritual battle. Just like Neo and his fellow revolutionaries experienced, when we are made fully alive by God's resurrection power, we become a threat to all the cosmic forces of our culture that want to keep us in the dark. Whether you like it or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a warrior. You're at war. That's why the Apostle Paul closes this incredibly optimistic letter with a very uh, important warning to be reminded that we are in spiritual battle. He, he has some strong statements to remind his readers and us that as soon as we become a part of Jesus' kingdom, we are at war with the kingdoms of this world. We're in a battle whether we like it or not. The only question is whether we're ready for it. So let's look carefully at this text under three headings that we'll look at today. We'll summarize. You can jot these down in your notes that I gave to you earlier. We'll summarize it in these ways. Three things we're going to look at. Number one, we are engaged in war. Number two, we are equipped for war. And number three, we are empowered for war. We are engaged in it, we are equipped for it, and we are empowered for it. We are engaged in war occurs in verses 10 through 12. Listen to the text. Ashley did a great job of reading it for you, but I'll read it again. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, we're involved in a very real, though perhaps invisible, battle. As soon as you responded to the good news about Jesus, you found yourself in the middle of the war. Sometimes the war involves external battles, and sometimes it involves internal battles. So there are two things to note. Number one, there is an internal war to be fought. Listen, for example, to Galatians 5, verse 17. I mean, each of us understands this internal battle. We've all felt it. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And listen also to Romans 7, 22 and following, where it says, the Apostle Paul himself writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, we've all felt this, haven't we? I have it happen for me more often than I'd like to admit. I'll get up in the morning and have my quiet time and drink my coffee, and I don't know which helps me more, the quiet time or the coffee. I think it's kind of a tie. And I get out and start to do my work, and everything looks pretty good. But as the day, and so I delight to, the law, to do the law of God in my inner man, right? You feel that, don't you? I believe we want to do the right things. But you find that sooner or later something happens and something trips you up, and now there's a battle when the very things you thought you would never do, you start thinking about doing. Or when with the very responses you thought you would never have to a conflict, you start responding. We're at war. That's why later in this text he says, oh, wretched man that I am. We feel that internal battle. We've all felt it. There's a massive struggle inside of our hearts. We have felt trapped by our passions, by our fears, by our past mistakes, by our memories. This is a real struggle. There is an internal battle that we face. However, that's not the battle the Apostle Paul is talking about in this text. There is an internal battle. I've just shown you text to talk about it. But in this text, he's talking about the second kind of battle, which is this. There is an external battle to be fought. The battlefield Paul describes here, it's very important to understand this, and yet uh, maybe a little bit conceptual for our thinking sometimes. The battlefield Paul talks about here is more external than internal. He is claiming that when we align ourselves with God and with His purposes for our lives, we become, by that decision, part of the rebellion, part of that group of Christ followers who are opposed to the dehumanizing patterns which govern much of our world. We're, in the words of Paul, engaged in a struggle. Here it says, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, when you become a, a follower of Jesus, yes, there are those internal battles, but you also are signing up for a system which is directly antithetical to the, the, the majority culture of our day. The best way I can think to illustrate this is to call your attention to the Hunger Games. Have any of you seen the movie, The Hunger Games? Any of you read the books? All three of them or just one, some of you? Yeah, all right. Um, I, I thought I'd refer, I was thinking about this today, and I'm going to assume that many of you have seen the movie, but that few, if any of you, have read the entire trilogy of books, so I won't spoil the whole thing for you by telling you 
too much about it. I've seen the first movie and read all three books. But in many ways, the real genius of Suzanne Collins's books is in the way that she couches a compelling story about two futuristic teenagers into a larger context of questions involving power, materialism, oppression, and violence. There is a story behind the story of Katniss and PETA. And you see it even in the first movie. They're caught in a system that, of survival that if they buy into it all 100%, they just contribute to the problem. There is a bigger story going on there than just two teenagers who may or may not be in love. And in a very poignant way, their decisions about survival at the end of the movie put them in an adversarial position against the rulers and the authorities of their time. And in subsequent books, we will see that even more. That brave act was rightly seen by the rulers and by all the other districts as an act of rebellion, an unlawful expression of freedom. And as future books explore, it had huge ramifications, not only for the two of them, but also for the rest of the country. Now, how does this relate to us as Christians in our so-called Christian America? Well, for example, when followers of Jesus practice and promote a scriptural approach to marriage in the midst of a culture that is trying to rewrite the rules of this basic social custom, the rulers of our age don't always like it, do they? They call us names sometimes. Or when followers of Jesus treat the aliens among us with the respect that Scripture demands of them, oh, we can get in a lot of trouble with our friends, can't we? Or when followers of Jesus seek after purity in a world addicted to sensuality, the spiritual forces of evil are not very happy about that. Or when followers of Jesus choose to forgive their enemies rather than to retaliate against them, the powers that be don't always sit idly by, do they? You see, if you really decide to live your life by the principles of this book, you will find yourself at odds with our culture, even though you love them. Even though you try to simply live your life, do your own thing, not make any waves, you will, by your life, make waves. And if you're not careful, you may even wake, make waves amongst your fellow Christian culture sometimes, too. All that to say this, when we choose to align ourselves with Jesus, we are signing up for spiritual warfare. As this scripture says, we struggle. our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Once I decide to become a fully alive follower of Jesus, if I am serious about becoming a living witness of God's new creation in Christ, I will find myself, by that decision, in the midst of spiritual battle, not just the internal ones we all feel, but the external ones as well. Honestly, every one of us signed up for that when we said, let's be part of a brand new church in Cave Creek. When you did that, you moved to the front lines of what God is doing in the world. Because this is at the very edge of what God, this is not living in the safe places where everything's predictable, in established churches where you can hide and be involved, you know. This is living out on the edge. This is for cutting-edge people, people who are ready to invest their lives in things that are bigger than themselves. Um, uh, and so that means we have sort of stood up for a spiritual battle. We're at the front of the lines. It's a little bit scary sometimes. I've felt this battle personally. Chances are you have too. 
As a church, we've felt this in various kinds of ways, and we're going to feel it some more. We are engaged in war, and it's not with people. It's with principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of weakness that want to keep people trapped, like the, uh, the capital wanted to keep the districts trapped in the Hunger Games. And two people worked to break down that system by their act of love. Well, we're engaged in war. Number two, we are equipped for war. He doesn't just tell us we're in war. He tells us we've got the equipment for the war. And this is the bulk of the text here um, that we'll look at uh, quickly. I won't reread this text. They're familiar texts. Ashley read it for you well. I'd like to make two observations here that, uh, about this text. So first of all, our warfare is corporate. Our warfare is corporate. It, unfortunately, we're so individualistic that we tend to always read about the Bible. It's God's Word to me. But it was written to a church that this war they were following, uh, engaged in was not just about how you can make it your way in your world, in your family, but rather this is something that involves everybody. We will not do well if we separate from one another and face these battles alone. There's a corporate battle. We need each other. The second observation is this. Our weapons are primarily defensive. Defensive. If you read through these weapons, they're not the kind of attacking weapons except for one. They're really defensive. They're the kinds of things you do when you get attacked. We do not go on an attack against the principalities of the powers. We just simply like, try to live the right way, and the principalities attack us, just like Katniss and Peta in that story. They weren't trying to do anything. But what they did created a situation of attack. We will see that in general, these images assume that the enemy will attack us in our areas of thinking. For it is generally in the area of our thinking that our mind battles are won or lost. Stinking thinking is usually the root of lousy living. I'm going to say that again. I kind of like that line when I thought of it. Stinking thinking is usually the root of lousy living. You've got to think right before you do right. So he's given us thinking uh, weapons. You'll see as you go through there. For example, um, uh, the enemy will cause us to doubt the gospel, to doubt the teachings of Scripture, to doubt that we belong to God. These weapons are designed to help us counteract these attacks. Let's look at the six weapons together. First of all, six weapons. Our first weapon is the belt of truth. Put uh, verse, stand your ground, uh, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Our first weapon is the belt of truth. We have truth on our side. This is important. It's a weapon. It's a belt we wear. And we're not going to go into all the all the armor things that, you know, people get into that. I just, Paul's making a basic image here. It's a, it's a truth, and the belt that we wear is truth. We have truth on our side. What is the truth? Jesus is raised from the, he has risen. That song we sang earlier, that's why uh, we need to be affirmed to those things because we have truth on our side. Jesus is raised from the dead. We are alive in him. He will re return to establish the new heaven and the earth. The gospel, friends, is true. True. Now think about how valuable it is. Like I can say to you, two plus two is four. You say, yes, that's right. You know, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is 
true. It's not a myth. It's not something we imagine. It is the belt of truth. The good news is about something that truly happened. It's not just good advice or common sense. It is good news, and the news is true. The enemy will cause us to doubt our convictions, to question our resolve. Everyone else may think that we're crazy, but when these happens, we wrap the belt of truth around us more tightly. I believe in Jesus Christ, only begotten of the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. This is why we need to worship, why we need the teaching of Scripture, why we need the Lord's Supper, why we need to gather together, why we need the gospel planted deeply into our hearts. For it suggests a manner of life contrary to that we see around us. It suggests forgiveness instead of retaliation, contentment instead of consumerism, selfless living instead of selfish living. Only the truth of the gospel can help us withstand the pressure around us. I will obey Jesus because Jesus died for me. He saved me. He rose again. He will come again. I will trust him. We have have the belt of truth. Let us wear it well. Our second weapon is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. So we have the belt now over the breastplate. What does the breastplate cover but our hearts? What is this? It is the conviction that we are made right with God, not through good behavior, but because of Jesus' completed work on our behalf. The breastplate of righteousness doesn't mean that you are living righteously, therefore you can defeat the devil. It means that Jesus has lived righteously and has given to you His righteousness. We have the righteousness which comes from God by faith. The, The thing that protects our heart is not our righteousness, but His righteousness. That's the gospel. You see, the enemy comes to us with our failures and our faults. He squeezes into the chinks of our armor and he says, is that any way for a Christian to act? I thought you said you loved Jesus. I thought you were going to do the right thing. Now look what you're doing. Now look at what you did. And if we're not careful, it gets into our hearts because we forget that we were never saved by our righteousness, but by His. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost. The breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts. He says, see how you sin, see how you doubt, see what little good your faith does you. But we counter his attack by saying, yes, I am weak, but he is strong. <laughs> it is not my righteousness which I rely on, but, it is, but I belong to him because of his righteousness, not my own. The breastplate of righteousness protects my heart. The righteousness is not mine, but his. Get thee behind me, Satan. He's, I, I, know I'm, I know it's just us, but hey, I care. This true, guys. Our third weapon, the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. And have your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of of peace. The gospel of peace. Peace is such an important theme in Ephesians. Uh, We have learned that it is the result of Jesus' coming that we've been made at peace with God and at peace with one another. If you think back to our time, we've seen that peace... Because of Jesus, made peace with God and peace with other people, other ethnic groups as well. This is, as Paul tells us here, part of the gospel, the good news. It's the good news, the gospel of peace. Peace is always precarious for us. 
whether it is that internal peace we want to feel with God or the external peace we long for in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our worlds. There's always something. That's why it says in Ephesians 4, therefore make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The enemy, the culture out there is always seeking to destroy peace. It happens every election season, but it happens all the time too. To us, it were the enemy wants to cut our feet from underneath us. For remember, our strength against the, against the enemy is not alone, but together. If he can separate us from one another, getting us arguing about non-essential areas of faith, cause division, he will find easy targets for his attacks. As you know, that is the way many beasts in this world overcome their prey, right? You have a large group together. They get chased by wolves or something. What are they trying to do? Separate one, young one away. You see, we want to be we want to be our feet shod with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. If we can stay together, we can hang together. If we get separated, we're easy picking, okay? This is our enemy's strategy, too. No, we must keep our feet fitted with the gospel of peace. United we stand. Together we fall. Number four, our fourth weapon, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. The shield is an incredibly important weapon for the soldier, he needs it. This scripture tells us to extinguish the flaming arrows. Normally what they would do, they would wet their shields, and so the, the, the uh, arrows would come and they would be doused by the wetness of the shields. Okay. What is our shield? Our shield is faith. Faith. But what kind of faith exactly? Our faith is in the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is the faith that saves us. By grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul told us early in this letter. And this is the faith, secondly, that shields us in this text. That faith in Jesus Christ shields you. It protects you. Our feelings will come and go. Our confidence will wax and wane. But our truth in the resurrected Jesus will always protect us. By grace I am saved through faith. And remember this. The important thing is not the strength of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that. Great faith and a poor object doesn't help you. Little faith in a great object does help you, right? I can have great faith in a, you know, in a twig on the side of the mountain to jump on. No matter how much faith I have, the twig only has so much strength. But if I have great faith in a paratrooper who knows what he's doing, it doesn't matter how fearful I am. It just matters whether I latch in and go, right? I can have little faith. I can scream the whole way down, but my faith's in the right thing. You see, the object of your faith is not wishful thinking. It is the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's a shield of faith. It will protect you. Our object is Jesus. Weak faith in a trustworthy object is far better than strong faith in an unworthy object. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, as he has... Cling to that faith for all you can. Hold it up above you. Let it extinguish those darts. Say, I'm dying here, Father. Protect me. I need the faith of Jesus Christ. It will shield you. Number five, our fifth weapon is the helmet of salvation. It is as if Paul, you know, as he's moving up here, you know, now he's to our heads. It is as if Paul is more or less saying the same thing. Have you thought about this? In every case, we have truth. We have righteousness. We have the gospel of faith peace. We have the shield of faith. To this we add the helmet of salvation. What is the common theme? The common theme among all these is that we have a confidence that comes from our belief that 
We belong to God. We trust His truth. We rely on His righteousness. We stand on His gospel of peace. We are shielded by faith in Him and protected by His salvation. We do not save ourselves. He saves us. You see, it's all about Jesus. He keeps us safe. He keeps us together. He keeps us strong when we're under attack. It's not so much a matter of skillfully using your weapons as humbly relying on Jesus and His truth. And when we do this, we will stand and stand and stand. It's used several times in that text. Now, there's one more weapon. It's the only one we can use offensively, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what is the Word of God? Well, we can probably say that it is the complete canon of Scripture, which like Jesus in the wilderness, we can quote against the enemy's attacks. The question is, how many Scriptures do you have in your quiver? If you're like most Christians, very few Scriptures in your quiver. That means you're... Your only offensive weapon is about this big, you know? Hebrews 4.12 says, And the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hebrews. Here he says we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why it is so important to be saturated with Scripture. Jesus needed Scripture to counteract the devil, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 4? How much more do we? You see, all of these six weapons point to one theme. The gospel is our weapon. The gospel is our weapon. The good news about what God has done for us in Jesus. This is our truth. This is our righteousness. This is our peace. This is our gospel. This is our hope. This is our shield. This is our salvation. This is our, the sword of our spirit. This is what gives us strength as we uh, encounter the flaming arrows of our culture. Well, when you are under attack, preach the gospel to yourself. <laughs> Trust His truth. Rely on His righteousness. Stand on His gospel. Be shielded by faith in Him and be protected by your confidence in His salvation. Refuse to criticize yourself, to condemn yourself. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Refuse to criticize and condemn everybody else. Jesus doesn't condemn them. Live in the gospel. Well, number three, and finally, we are empowered for war. We are empowered for war, verses 18 to 20. Four times in these few verses, Paul uses the word which should capture our attention as we think about our empowerment for battle. He says, pray for us. Pray for us. Do you see it, you see it in there? And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I guess there are actually five times. How are we empowered for prayer or for war? Prayer. Now, if you're like me, you might find yourself a little bit disenchanted. Like, I want something really useful. <laughs> you know, I want something really good. Well, wake up. That is good. That is good. If you really believe that when you prayed, God came to your side, wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, he does. 
That's why the Apostle Paul says, pray for us. Pray for us seems too much like doing nothing because all we see are the physical realities. But this isn't a physical battle we're fighting. It's a spiritual reality. And you only have one spiritual weapon like that. It's the Word of God and prayer. When you pray, you unite with the purposes of God in the world. Our reluctance shows that we often see just what's around us. We began by reminding ourselves that there are unseen spiritual realities which influence our lives, our relationship, our culture. These have a huge impact on our world. How can we counteract these unseen realities except by the invisible reality of prayer? Prayer is our most vital weapon. It is through prayer that we disarm spiritual wickedness. It is through prayer that we engage God's insistence. We, it is through prayer that we pave the way and clear the obstacles for people to respond to the gospel. When we pray, we do direct battle with invisible forces which enslave our world. Make time for prayer. Friends, we must pray. He says four ways to pray. Pray for the saints. Pray for responsiveness to the message. And he says pray for the preacher, which if you don't forget one of them, don't forget that one. Pray for everything. You see, as a church, we are on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Let's pray, shall we? Will you make it your conviction to pray? Well, there were more things I wanted to say about prayer, but our time is gone. And uh, we have the opportunity to practice the gospel today by remembering Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. You see, we need to be gospel-centered. We never get far from that gospel. And... Uh, let us remember Jesus and what he did for us. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, we consecrate these elements as they remind us of Jesus who went to the cross for us and rose from the dead. The bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood given for us. And as we take it, we take it knowing that you are our truth, you are our righteousness, you are our shield, you are our gospel of peace, you are our salvation. You are worthy of our worship. Thank you for doing all that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>